I'm walking the streets that I did walking with you in my head. stories and you're listening to Bob Dylan his Grammy Award performance for Time Out of Mind which put him back on the map I don't know the 10th time and no singer songwriter has ever come before or after like Bob Dylan like him or not he won the Nobel Prize and he gave a speech that was so remarkable we're going to play it for you because it was essentially a defense of the western canon that is Real literature. The range and power of Dylan's art will stun you from his early folk days to his revolutionary recordings like Blonde on Blonde and Blood on the Tracks, from his remarkable Christian period, Ring Them Bells, Every Grain of Sand, Gotta Serve Somebody, their gospel masterpieces, right through to his stark blues period, which you were just listening to, and the writing on records like Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft. Listen to the song It's Not Dark Yet, and try not to hear literature and the call of literature's great themes. And we're going to play that bumping out of this segment. For those of us who call ourselves Dylan fans, when the Nobel Prize was announced, we wondered what would come next. Would Dylan fulfill the final requirement of accepting the award and give the required lecture to the Nobel Foundation? It would be so unlike him, we thought. Or would he simply not show up? That also would be unlike him. He always shows up. Well, last week, Dylan did what only Dylan would do. He released a recorded speech to the Nobel Foundation. It was, among other things, part autobiography, part music history, and in the end, a radical defense of classic literature, from the Odyssey to Moby Dick. Dylan began the talk by puzzling over the question of whether or not his music is actually literature. He wasn't at all certain. When I received the Nobel Prize for Literature, I got to wondering exactly how my songs related to literature. I wanted to reflect on it and see where the connection was. I'm going to try to articulate that to you, and most likely it will go in a roundabout way. But I hope what I say will be worthwhile and purposeful. He then plunged knee-deep into the roots of his art and the artist's 
that triggered his life's journey. If I was to go back to the dawning of it all, I guess I'd have to start with Buddy Holly. Buddy died when I was about 18 and he was 22. From the moment I first heard him, I felt akin. I felt related, like he was an older brother. I even thought I resembled him. Buddy played the music that I loved, the music I grew up on, country western, rock and roll, and rhythm and blues. Three separate strands of music that he intertwined and infused into one genre, one brand. And Buddy wrote songs, songs that had beautiful melodies and imaginative verses. And he sang great. He sang in more than a few voices. He was the archetype, everything I wasn't and wanted to be. I saw him only but once, and that was a few days before he was gone. I had to travel a hundred miles to get to see him play, and I wasn't disappointed. He was powerful and electrifying, and had a commanding presence. I was only six feet away. He was mesmerizing. I watched his face, his hands, the way he tapped his foot, his big black glasses, the eyes behind the glasses, the way he held his guitar, the way he stood, his neat suit, everything about him. He looked older than 22. Something about him seemed permanent, and he filled me with conviction. Then out of the blue, the most uncanny thing happened. He looked me right straight dead in the eye, and he transmitted something, something I didn't know what, and it gave me the chills. Dylan continued to walk us through his musical birth and growth. I think it was a day or two after that that his plane went down, and somebody, somebody I'd never seen before, handed me a Lead Belly record with the song Cotton Fields on it. And that record changed my life right then and there, transported me into a world I'd never known. It was like an explosion went off, like I'd been walking in darkness, and all of a sudden the darkness was illuminated. It was like somebody laid hands on me. I must have played that record a hundred times. And we're going to go out now with one of his compositions from one of his blues records, It's Not Dark Yet. He recorded this with Daniel Lenoir, the man who I think put you two on the map. When the Joshua Tree was recorded, it was Daniel Lenoir's influence that turned you two from a sort of a punk New Age band to an international world-class band. This is Our American Stories, Bob Dylan's story, the Nobel Prize, his speech after these messages. Shadows are falling And I've been here all day It's too hot to sleep And time is running away Feel like my soul has Turn into steel I've still got the scars At the sound in me There's not even room enough To be anywhere It's not dark yet But it And my sense of humanity has gone down the drain. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You 
Our American Stories, and you can judge a man's writing, particularly songwriting, by the number of covers that his writing spawns. And my goodness, no one had more covers than Bob Dylan as a writer, but the Beatles. Nobody. Only the Beatles had more. Again, as writers. And we're talking about Bob Dylan, and we're talking about his Nobel speech, which was just remarkable, indeed so good, that we want to share it with you. And we now dig into the time that Dylan spent talking about his life as a journeyman and a craftsman and the early tug of American roots music from blues to bluegrass. I hadn't left home yet, but I couldn't wait to. I wanted to learn this music and meet the people who played it. Eventually, I did leave, and I did learn to play those songs. They were different than the radio songs that I'd been listening to all along. They were more vibrant and truthful to life. With radio songs, a performer might get a hit with a roll of the dice or a fall of the cards, but that didn't matter in the folk world. Everything was a hit. All you had to do was be well-versed and be able to play the melody. Some of these songs were easy, some not. I had a natural feeling for the ancient ballads and country blues. But everything else I had to learn from scratch, and I was playing for small crowds. Sometimes no more than four or five people in a room or on a street corner. You had to have a wide repertoire, and you had to know what to play and when. Some songs were intimate, some you had to shout to be heard. By listening to all the early folk artists and singing the songs yourself, you pick up the vernacular, you internalize it, you sing it in the ragtime blues, work songs, Georgia Sea Shanties, the Appalachian ballads and cowboy songs, You hear all the finer points and you learn the details. You know what it's all about. Taking a pistol out, putting it back in your pocket, whipping your way through traffic, talking in the dark. You know that Steiger Lee was a bad man and that Frankie was a good girl. You know that Washington is a bourgeois town and you heard the deep-pitched voice of John the Revelator and you saw the Titanic sink in a boggy creek and your pals with the wild Irish rover and the wild colonial boy. You heard the muffled drums and the fifes that played lowly. You've seen the lusty Lord Donald stick a knife in his wife, and a lot of your comrades have been wrapped in white linen. I had all the vernacular down. I knew the rhetoric. None of it went over my head. The devices, the techniques, the secrets, the mysteries, and I knew all the deserted roads that I traveled on too. I could make it all connect and move with the current of the day. When I started writing my own songs, the folk lingo was the only vocabulary that I knew, and I used it. This tutorial on mastery of craft wasn't finished. Indeed, it had only just begun. Dylan then proceeded to tell us the larger canvas from which he drew inspiration, literature, and the very best novels that were once a fundamental part of every American school kid's life. Rarely, if ever, has the Western canon 
been more eloquently defended. But I had something else as well. I had principles and sensibilities and an informed view of the world. And I had had that for a while. Learned it all in grammar school. Don Quixote. Ivanhoe. Robinson Crusoe. Gulliver's Travels. Tales of Two Cities. All the rest. Typical grammar school reading. They gave you a way of looking at life. An understanding of human nature. And a standard to measure things by. I took all that with me when I started composing lyrics. And the themes from those books work their way into many of my songs, either knowingly or unintentionally. I wanted to write songs unlike anything anybody ever heard. And these themes were fundamental. One of the works of literature that Dylan talked about in this great speech is the epic poem by Homer, The Odyssey, of all things. But it was relevant to Dylan and alive to Dylan And he thinks it's still alive today, that story and the eternal themes. Take a listen. The Odyssey is a great book whose themes have worked its way into the ballads of a lot of songwriters. Homeward Bound, Green Green Grass of Home, Home on the Range, and my songs as well. The Odyssey is a strange, adventurous tale of a grown man trying to get home after fighting in a war. He's on that long journey home and it's filled with traps and pitfalls. He's cursed to wander. He's always getting carried out to sea, always having close calls. Huge chunks of boulders rock his boat. He angers people he shouldn't. There's troublemakers in his crew. Treachery. His men are turned into pigs, and then they're turned back into younger, more handsome men. He's always trying to rescue somebody. He's a traveling man, but he's making a lot of stops. He's stranded on a desert island. He finds deserted caves and he hides in them. He meets giants that say, I'll eat you last. And he escapes from giants. He's trying to get back home, but he's tossed and turned by the winds. Restless winds, chilly winds, unfriendly winds. He travels far and then he gets blown back. He's always being warned of things to come, touching things he's told not to. There's two roads to take. And they're both bad, both hazardous. On one you could drown, and on the other you could starve. He goes into the narrow straits with foaming whirlpools that swallow him, meets six-headed monsters with sharp fangs. Thunderbolts strike at him, overhanging branches that he makes a leap to reach for to save himself from a raging river. Goddesses and gods protect him, but some others want to kill him. He changes identities. He's exhausted. He falls asleep and he's woken up by the sound of laughter. He tells his story to strangers. He's been gone 20 years. He was carried off somewhere and left there. Drugs have been dropped into his wine. It's been a hard road to travel. In a lot of ways, some of these same things have happened to you. You too have had drugs dropped into your wine. You too have shared a bed with the wrong woman. You too have been spellbound by magical voices, sweet voices with strange melodies. You too have come so far and have been so far blown back. And you've had close calls as well. You have angered people you should not have. And you too have rambled this country all around. And you've also felt that ill wind, the wind that blows you no good. And that's still not all of it. When he gets back home, things aren't any better. 
Scoundrels have moved in and are taking advantage of his wife's hospitality. And there's too many of them. And though he's greater than them all, and the best at everything, best carpenter, best hunter, best expert on animals, best seaman, his courage won't save him, but his trickery will. All these stragglers will have to pay for desecrating his palace. He'll disguise himself as a filthy beggar, and a lowly servant kicks him down the steps with arrogance and stupidity. The servant's arrogance revolts him, but he controls his anger. He's one against a hundred, but they'll all fall, even the strongest. He was nobody, and when it's all said and done, when he's home at last, he sits with his wife and he tells her the stories. And my goodness, you want this guy teaching your literature class, don't you? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Bob Dylan, his explication, his explanation of Moby Dick may be the greatest of all time, a story we all know, but not really, not after we listen to Bob Dylan talk about it. We're going to go out with more covers, and this one, one of the best of all. Dylan had often said that after he heard Jimi Hendrix sing all along the watchtower, he had to sing it different. There must be some kind of way out of here, say the joker to the thief, there's too much confusion. I can't get no relief Business man there to drink my wine Come and dig my earth None will level on the mine Nobody of it is worth Our American Stories, you're listening to Axl Rose, Guns N' Roses, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, everybody covered Dylan, the most covered songwriter of all time besides the Beatles, but there were three songwriters in the Beatles. Dylan did it by himself. And let's return to that great Nobel speech, and we get up next to Moby Dick, and we get up close as Dylan talks about the impact of literature on his life and this book. Moby Dick is a fascinating book a book that's filled with scenes of high drama 
and dramatic dialogue. The book makes demands on you. The plot is straightforward. A mysterious captain Ahab, captain of a ship called the Pequod, an egomaniac with a peg leg, pursuing his nemesis, the great white whale Moby Dick, who took his leg. And he pursues him all the way from the Atlantic, around the tip of Africa, and into the Indian Ocean. He pursues the whale around both sides of the earth. It's an abstract goal, nothing concrete or definite. He calls Moby the emperor, sees him as the embodiment of evil. Ahab's got a wife and child back in Nantucket that he reminisces about now and again. You can anticipate what will happen. The ship's crew is made up of men of different races, and any one of them who sights the whale will be given the reward of a gold coin, a lot of zodiac symbols, religious allegory, stereotypes. Ahab encounters other whaling vessels, presses the captains for details about Moby. Have they seen him? There's a crazy prophet, Gabriel, on one of the vessels, and he predicts Ahab's doom. Says Moby is the incarnate of a shaker god, and that any dealings with him will lead to disaster. He says that to Captain Ahab. Another ship's captain, Captain Boomer, he lost an arm to Moby, but he tolerates that, and he's happy to have survived. He can't accept Ahab's lust for vengeance. This book tells how different men react in different ways to the same experience. A lot of Old Testament biblical allegory. Gabriel, Rachel, Jeroboam, Bildad, Elijah, pagan names as well. Tashtego, Flask, Dagu, Fleece, Starbuck, Stub, Martha's Vineyard. The pagans are idol worshippers. Some worship little wax figures, some wooden figures. Some worship fire. The Pequod is the name of an Indian tribe. Moby Dick is a seafaring tale. One of the men, the narrator, says, call me Ishmael. Somebody asks him where he's from. He says, it's not down on any map. True places never are. Stubb gives no significance to anything. Says everything is predestined. Ishmael's been on a sailing ship his entire life. Calls the sailing ships his Harvard and Yale. He keeps his distance from people. A typhoon hits the Pequod. Captain Ahab thinks it's a good omen. Stubbuck thinks it's a bad omen. Considers killing Ahab. As soon as the storm ends, a crew member falls from the ship's mast and drowns, foreshadowing what's to come. A Quaker pacifist priest who is actually a bloodthirsty businessman, tells Flask, some men who receive injuries are led to God, others are led to bitterness. Everything is mixed in, all the myths, the Judeo-Christian Bible, Hindu myths, British legends, St. George, Perseus, Hercules, they're all whalers, Greek mythology, the gory business of cutting up a whale, lots of facts in this book, geographical knowledge, Whale oil, good for coronation of royalty, noble families in the whaling industry. Whale oil is used to anoint the kings, history of the whale, phrenology, classical philosophy, pseudo-scientific theories, justification for discrimination, everything thrown in, and none of it hardly rational. Highbrow, lowbrow, chasing illusion, chasing death. The great white whale, white as a polar bear, White as a white man, the emperor, the nemesis, the embodiment of evil. 
And by what, by the way, what a book. Pick it up, read it sometime, and you want to after listening to Dylan talk about it. And then in this part of the speech, Dylan closed things out and tied everything together. So what does it all mean? Myself and a lot of other songwriters have been influenced by these very same themes. And they can mean a lot of different things. If a song moves you, that's all that's important. I don't have to know what a song means. I've written all kinds of things into my songs, and I'm not going to worry about it, what it all means. When Melville put all his Old Testament biblical references, scientific theories, Protestant doctrines, and all that knowledge of the sea and sailing ships and whales into one story, I don't think he would have worried about it either, what it all means. John Donne as well, the poet-priest who lived in the time of Shakespeare, they wrote these words, the cestos and abidos of her breasts, not of two lovers, but two loves, the nests. I don't know what it means either, but it sounds good, and you want your songs to sound good. When Odysseus in the Odyssey visits the famed warrior Achilles in the underworld, Achilles, who traded a long life full of peace and contentment for a short one full of honor and glory, Tells Odysseus, there was all a mistake. I just died, that's all. There was no honor, no immortality. And that if he could, he would choose to go back and be a lowly slave to a tenant farmer on earth rather than be what he is, a king in the land of the dead. That whatever his struggles of life were, they were preferable to being here in this dead place. And that's what songs are too. Our songs are alive in the land of the living. But songs are unlike literature. They're meant to be sung, not read. The words in Shakespeare's plays were meant to be acted on the stage, just as lyrics and songs are meant to be sung, not read on a page. And I hope some of you get the chance to listen to these lyrics the way they were intended to be heard, in concert or on record or however people are listening to songs these days. I'll return once again to Homer, who says, Sing in me, O muse, and through me tell the story. And luckily for all of us, Dylan came of age at a time that kids got to read these classics. We all did. Their universality is sorely missing as literature has devolved into identity, politics, grievance, and self-help. What Dylan's work would have been like without these influences We'll never know. And to all of you Dylan doubters, this speech might just have you rethinking your position. And so we end this segment with a suggestion. Get out the lyrics to some of Dylan's great songs and even some of his lesser known songs and sing them. Sing them and you will know them. Sing them and you will come to love them. Sing them and you will somehow feel yourself connected to the great literature, the great stories of the ages. This is Our American Stories. Bob Dylan, the man, the artist, I think summarized as beautifully as I've ever heard anyone summarize the meaning of literature. More after these messages. Then you People call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall, you thought they were all kidding you. Everybody that was 
proud about having to be scrounging your next This is Our American Stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here on this show about everyone from international celebrities to folks you've never heard of, because each of those stories gives us a little window into a life. If we can't walk a mile in someone else's shoes, we can at least hear a story about it. Joey Cortez did some great work for us as an intern, and then he went back to school at Boston College. While reading the B.C. student newspaper, The Gavel, Joey came across an inspiring story from a young woman named Kitty Sargent. She's in the B.C. class of 2016, and so many people talk about this upcoming college generation, and I think rather pejoratively, and it's a shame. And We don't think this way or act like this on our show. Kitty kindly recorded her story, and Joey produced it for us. Let's take a listen. This is Kitty Sargent on Being Pretty. I walked into my 7th grade math class the day after I got a haircut, feeling like a million bucks. My hair was straight and shiny, my smile stretched from ear to ear. I felt pretty. Beautiful, even. That's saying a lot for an awkward 7th grader. But suddenly, a voice cut through the happiness I was feeling. This was girl Gabrielle. Wow, Kitty. If only you got contacts, then you'd actually be pretty. Wait. So I wasn't pretty, but I could be. I had gotten glasses in fifth grade and wore them every day for the next 10 years. I tried contacts, but never liked them. So I stuck with my four eyes. As I got older, I seemed to have it all together on the outside, but my self-confidence plummeted. Pretty girls weren't supposed to wear glasses. It didn't bother me as much in high school, but that changed once I got to BC. My insecurities about my glasses was compounded by a host of other body images and appearance-based concerns. Never before had I been around so many people who cared so much about what they looked like. Diets weren't a thing in my high school, but in college, carbs were suddenly evil. The elliptical became a close personal friend of mine at BC. And shouldn't that have made me pretty? Shouldn't it have made me happy? The other girls certainly seemed happy, and they were pretty too. My sophomore eight-man had dieting competitions to hold us accountable, with charts posted in the kitchen and planks doled out to those who messed up. The app I used the most on my phone was my calorie counter. I was doing it right, but I still didn't feel pretty. My body image issues were also largely driven by a need to overcompensate for shortcomings in other areas. 
At the end of my freshman year, I found a lump in my throat that was growing quickly. It was a thyroid nodule, and it continued to grow all throughout my first semester of sophomore year. The doctor wanted to wait and monitor how big it got before making any decisions on what to do with it. But this wait-and-see attitude drove me crazy. I was trying so hard to do everything right, and I still wasn't in control. It was like my body was laughing at me. You want to fit in? You want to feel pretty? You don't want that confidence to be fake? Well, here's a curveball. The watch-and-see method led to a decision to remove the nodule in March of my sophomore year. But I knew about the surgery in January, which led to two months of agonizing waiting. It was in this two-month window that I started a gratitude practice. I needed to find a silver lining to come to terms with the lump in my throat, so I hoped that practicing gratitude would help me to do so. Every morning I would wake up, sit down holding my mug of tea, and list off what I was grateful for. My parents, my friends, and BC. But as the weeks went by, my, cra- my practice grew more routine. I'm grateful to be a woman in a society that respects me as an equal contributor. I'm grateful to live in a democracy where my vote, my opinion, matters. I'm grateful that the sun rises in the east every morning. And one morning during my reflection, a new thought popped into my head. I was grateful for my body because it lets me run and jump and sing and hug. It lets me explore the world and learn new things. In that moment, I wasn't grateful for how my body looked, but for what it did. That morning was the first morning in many years that I liked my body. The surgery came and went. I was back at school uh, a week later when my surgeon called. It wasn't just a lump. It was cancer. I was shocked. It wasn't supposed to be cancerous. I wasn't supposed to get cancer, especially as a sophomore in college. My body didn't love me, and I didn't love my body. But then there was that nagging gratitude practice where I discovered all these great things that I adored about what my body could do. As my treatment ran its course over the next few months, I found the chance to marvel at modern medicine. A hundred years ago, I probably would have died. But with the aid of medical treatment, my body found the strength to fight back. I was declared cancer-free on July 1st, 2014. I was free from doctors, needles, and medical words too long to pronounce. I was free to be me again, and not just a girl with cancer. Somehow, by getting sick, by being pushed so far into loathing my body and what it had, quote, done to me, I stopped hating my body. Obviously, I experienced setbacks. I still have days where I criticize how I look. I got LASIK surgery the same summer that I finished my cancer cancer treatment. And I won't pretend that my glasses disappearing didn't help my confidence. But generally, I found I couldn't hate something so incredible that had fought back and won against this terrible disease. Now, when I eat healthy foods, it's to nourish my body so it can perform its very best. Not because I'm counting calories. When I work out, it's not to lose weight. It's just nice to feel strong after feeling so weak in the past. The more I forced myself to love my body, the less forced it felt. The more I forced myself to act confident, the less it felt like an act. I went abroad to Paris and ate more bread and cheese and wine than I had in the previous two and a half years at BC. 
I realized that good food isn't evil, it's heavenly. The French would call it a raison d'être, a reason to be. Being away from BC for a whole semester also showed me that I needed to want things because I myself truly wanted them. If I didn't want to fit into the BC stereotypes of beauty, then I shouldn't let myself feel pressured to do so. Of course, that's far easier to say when you're six time zones away. Back on campus now, that pressure is still just as present as it was when I, before I went abroad. Sometimes I wish my waist were smaller, my hair less frizzy, my laugh less obnoxious. The list goes on and the critiques are still as numerous as before. But then I remember what I'm grateful for about my body. I've sung a mass at La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. I've climbed the Duomo in Florence. I've gone on sunset jogs along the Seine in Paris. I've beaten cancer. The positives start to outweigh the negatives, and those critical voices seem to get a little quieter each time. The words that one 13-year-old girl forgot five seconds later still occasionally ring in my ears. Am I pretty today? Am I ever actually pretty? I will always be working to shift my conception of self-worth away from just what I look like. But today, I know I can usually look in the mirror and be happy with what I see. With who I see. I see someone who's just a little more confident than she was yesterday. Just a little happier. And today, that's all I need. And great work on that, Joey. And thank you, Kitty, for revealing that part of yourself. And uh, and Faith, Faith is 21 on our staff, on our team. I've got an 11-year-old girl, and I've already heard her ask that question to herself in front of a mirror. What goes there? I don't. And I, by the way, I hear this is happening more and more with young men too. Um, but talk about uh, talk about this this body image thing with girls. I think so much of it is comparison. We look at other people, and it's you know I'm too skinny, I'm too fat in comparison to who? It's other people. One of my favorite quotes is Theodore Roosevelt. He says, "Comparison is the thief of joy," because what are when we're comparing to other people, we're depressed, we're ungrateful even hateful towards others because we're looking at them thinking they have this while I want that or whatever it is so we may act unkindly but I love how honest Kitty is and what she says about how okay I haven't fully overcome this like some days it's still hard right right and some days it's still difficult and some days I still look in the mirror and wish I was somebody else or I wish my you know my chest was bigger my waist was smaller I had a thigh gap or something like that right (laughs) um which most people don't even know what it is, um, guys, at least. And so I think I love her honesty because even though she has come so far, she still has to refocus so often. And I wish that it hadn't been through those difficulties, but I'm so proud of her. And I hope like a lot of other people can learn from what she Well, shared. if you've got daughters or if you're a woman, um, I know my wife, I don't know anyone who has a woman in their life knows that they're looking in the mirror different then for the most part, men look in the mirror because I think we look in the mirror and think, wow, we look wonderful. Losing hair, the belly's getting bigger, and we just go, let's have a beer. That's about it. And here on Our American Stories, we talk about everything. But that gratitude practice, I think that's the most important thing in the world. And thanks for that quote as well, Faith, on comparison stripping you of your joy because it does in the end. It does. And here on Our American Stories, we love to tell stories about everything and from everyone here. Well, hopefully you have a different impression of young college folks because they ain't any different than we were 
They're just growing up in different times. We were all young once. We're older. But my goodness, the self-doubt, the beauty in this young lady's voice. We want to get to know her better. We're going to reach out to her. I think this is a voice we want to hear more from here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and from time to time we like to take the pulse of Main Street America and particularly small businesses in Main Street America because small businesses are the lifeline and the pulse of America 55% of all jobs 55% of all jobs are small business jobs two-thirds of all new net jobs are small business jobs and by the way just some Interesting facts before we dig into this segment. Since 1990, big businesses have contracted or eliminated 4 million jobs in this country, while small business owners have added 8 million new jobs. And that's why we do this. And by the way, we do it because in the end, we're all pulling for small business owners, and we know them. And that's the local dentist, a good friend of mine, Walker. He has 20-plus employees. That's a small business, that dental office. And the barber shop and the the local bicycle shop, this is what makes America hum, and some of them grow into some pretty big small businesses, and then some of them grow into really big, big businesses. And as always, these hourly reports are brought to us by our friends at Job Creators Network, and defendmainstreet.org is where you can go to to find out more about what they do. And so our young interns, Shadrach, Martin, and Colby from Hillsdale College, well, they just got here, and we sent them right on the road. And they're traveling around the country talking to business owners of all stripes. We're learning what got them into their businesses, what their businesses do for their local communities, and ultimately how taxes and regulatory policies affect those businesses and thereby those communities. Here's a small business owner we talked to in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, a town of approximately 40,000 people, an emerging college town. It's the home of Southeast Missouri State University. My name's Eric Good, and I own Cape Bicycle and Fitness. We're a bicycle and fitness store, and we've been here since 1978. So why bikes? Uh, I like bikes. I, I rode bikes a lot when I was young, and I started working at a bike shop when I was 15 years old, and I haven't ridden as much since I've worked at a bike shop. I'm 60 now, but we just enjoy it. Uh, it's something we like to do. I, I had a guy today that came from pretty far distance, and he's in a wheelchair. He can't walk. He can't stand. And we got him on a three-wheel recumbent bike, and he's riding. Wow. So that was just, it was just an awesome deal for me today. And you can hear the enthusiasm in this guy's, in this guy's voice. Our team asked Eric, the owner of this shop, about some of the challenges he's facing at Cape Bicycle and Fitness. We pretty much see our expenses going up every year, and um, generally our profit margins are decreasing. So it'd be, why do you it'd think be a, that is? It's just the way, the way of the world. You know, expenses are going to continue to go up, whether it's your insurance or your property taxes continue to climb. And then many of the, uh, if not many, if not most of the manufacturers seem to be cutting margins, and, you know, their profitability just seems to be getting tighter and tighter every year. So yeah. we keep going after it, and fortunately for us, we've got our ability 
building paid for, we've got inventory paid for, no debt, and so that makes it a lot easier. Uh, but yeah, I just uh, we're going to just keep keep doing it because we enjoy it. Our traveling interns then asked this small business owner from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, what a tax cut would mean for his bicycle shop. Well, it certainly can help. I mean, yeah. there's times where, you know, if, if we're going to have a little less of a tax burden, I mean, mm-hmm. we can go out and spend a little more money. I mean, we have situations where, whether it's our local city, mm-hmm. our university is spending money out of the area or out of the state. And frankly, if, you know, I've got less money coming in, we're probably going to spend less money on advertising or for my employees who, who need jobs. So, yeah, I think it's important to do everything we can, try to help the money stay within our local economy, and, and it gets paid on to whether it's the employee, mm. the guy at the coffee shop, or the guy going to the movie theater, or mm. the car dealer. And next up, our interns talk to another small business owner in Cape Girardeau, this time in the marketing field. My name is Dana Thomas. I'm the owner of Bold Marketing, and we are a full-service marketing advertising agency in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Growing up, I knew ex- that I definitely wanted to own my own business. There was not a doubt. Um, I just didn't know what. And so I went through the process just thought of all kinds of ideas and knew at some point it would just hit me that it was the right time and the right avenue. And that's kind of what happened. Somehow by good grace and hard work and a great team, we have grown to where we service clients in 20 states. And now we have a second location in Nashville um, where we're growing that team base there as well. Dana describes her market and then shares a story about the extraordinary measures she took to retain just a single employee. For one, it's the fastest growing market in the country and it's very populated with medical and financial, which is two of the industries that we specialize in. We also had an account manager here that I was training every day for two years to be an account executive. Um, Her husband got transferred to that market and I said, okay, let's not lose you. Let's just open up uh, that satellite office there. And so that's how we chose that location was because she was moving to that market. And that's Nashville, of course. Our team then asked Dana what the biggest expenses were in this marketing firm comprised of 20 employees. Payroll is our biggest expense here just because of the industry that we're in. It's a service industry. And um, I expect a lot of employees and our clients expect even more. And so we have uh, our employees are, are paid well. We also have a lot of media that we place, and so whether it's TV, radio, digital, social media, a big portion of our our revenues go out to media placement. Otherwise, it's your typical government taxes and everything else. We have owned this building, we're building another building, and we have our office in Franklin. When asked what she would do with a tax break, Dana Thomas of Bold Marketing had this to say. Uh, I would do two things. One, I would increase my staff. So I would I would open up probably two more position, full-time positions with benefits. Um, so it would help that growth opportunity. Um, the other piece is I would invest more in technology. Um, we are developing software right now, and I would probably develop, um, invest in even more software. And by the way, when she said she'd hire two new people, she meant it. And when she said she would invest in technology, she's hiring more people because business-to-business sales mean more jobs and we love talking about the impact of tax policy only as it relates to you and only in storytelling form because that's all we do here on our american stories it's stories about your pocketbook about your family about your dinner table your health insurance your lives your lives here on our american stories our young interns traveling around the country talking to small business owners 
everywhere here on Our American Stories, Voices of Main Street Project. Our American Stories, and we return to our special Voices of Main Street Hour, where we send our crew around the country, either in person or on the phone, to talk to small businesses about what's going on in their lives. And you know these small business owners, is their friends, their neighbors, and the lifeblood of the American economy. And that's the thing, I don't think most Americans know that 55% of all jobs come from small business, and two-thirds of all new jobs new net jobs. Those are big numbers, and they're a big part of our economy, and we don't hear from them enough. And that's why we do this Voices of Main Street piece. And we have our intrepid interns, and it's it's just good fun to send 20-somethings out and find out about real-life consequences of public policy. Some of these young people might be studying government in school. They might be studying something like it, civics. But this is a civics class in action, folks. And so we return to a place called Handmade Heaven. And by the way, it's a store that makes handmade goods from quilts to cupcakes. They have it all. And the owner is Maggie Bodai. My name is Maggie Bodai. Um, The business is, it's called Handmade Heaven, of course. Everything in here is handmade stuff from local area crafters, bakers, woodworkers, artists, Um, everything like that. Uh, We do a consignment basis. I do not charge my people like a monthly or weekly fee. Uh, I just make 20% off whatever they sell through here. That helps them and it also helps me. I have no overhead in this business as far as everything you see in here. You know, they bring their stuff in and I just get 20% when it sells. What got you guys into the idea of opening a business? Well, actually, I had three jobs before I opened this place. Um, I think my husband could see that it was kind of wearing on me, so he was like, why don't you just open your own shop? And I was like, there's no way. Like, how are we going to do that? So um, anyway, we just went to the bank. We talked to the owners of this building. Um, Actually, we did not get a, like, business loan. We didn't do it the conventional way at all. We got $1,300 back for income taxes this year, and we refinanced my son's truck, and that's what started this place. We are going to buy the building, but for the first 12 months, we're set up on a lease purchase. So that way, if the business doesn't go well, at the end of that 12 months, we can just we have the option to walk away or go ahead and purchase the building. So like, if somebody could you know, get somebody to work with them like we did, I mean, pretty much anybody could do this. Anybody. Anybody can do it. And by the way, my mom had a consignment shop, and she gave great supplemental income to our family. And by the way, the women who came in to consign made money too. It was great supplemental income 
for their families. And I think my mom had at the core about 25 core, you know, consigners who made a living for my mom. My mom made a living for them and it gave my mom meaning and just made her so happy. And when she got a little too old and it was just too hard, the worst thing we ever had to do as a family was close that consignment shop, which thank goodness we didn't have to do at the end. An angel came in, one of her customers and took it over. And here's Maggie explaining why she started this kind of business. And by the way, it's located in a town called Madrid, Missouri. The handmade stuff, I really like it. Like, I've always loved handmade stuff. Um, It's always personal. It's a -a one-of-a-kind, unique, personal gift. Uh, My daughter and I, we make sugar scrubs and bath bombs and things like that. And we knew how hard it was to be able to sell that stuff. Basically, all you have is, like, Facebook, word of mouth, or pay to set up at a craft fair or something like that. So we wanted to help other people, too. That's why I told my husband, you know, if we start this business, I want to do something that helps not only us, but others around in the area. And this is a great thing because this gives people, so many talented people, a chance to have a storefront to sell their stuff in. I really enjoy helping others. I always have. Like, I've always been big into charity and stuff. That's why, like I said, when we started this, I really wanted to do something that not only helped me, you know, not have to work three jobs, but you know, help other people around too. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to charge the, the booth fees or anything like a, a regular flea market or something like that would because with that, you know, if they didn't sell anything, then they're just out money and I don't want people to have to go through that. Were you able to draw people into getting their items here in the store? I thought it might be hard actually, but once I, you know, put the word out of what I was doing, I literally have somebody come in either every day or every other day saying, do you have somebody who makes this? I do this. I make that. You know, it's actually easy. They come to me. I don't have to, I don't really have to do anything. <laughs> I mean, this has been great so far. We've been well, very well received by the community. Everybody who comes in loves the place. They love that it's unique and it's different than most shops. Um, I, I don't know where another shop is like this. I think this week will be two months maybe. We opened, we did a soft opening on March 25th, and we were open that week. And then April 1st, we did our grand opening. And, you know, we've been open ever since. And like I said, we, we have quite a bit of business, actually. I really didn't know how it was going to go. You know, the first few weeks, well, about the first six weeks, I was open seven days a week just to see where I needed to be. And um, honestly, nobody comes in before lunch break. So many people work, you know, they have jobs, but lunch break, we have people come in and we're pretty much busy until eight o'clock at night when we close. And that's the sound of small business right there and a brand new baby business, which we just love here on this show. She makes it very clear that she never saw herself as a business owner. I mean, did you see yourself being a business owner growing up? No, never. (laughs) I, I came from a very poor family, actually. Um, We lived off welfare, and my dad got, he was an elderly man when I was born. And so he got Social Security, and that's basically what my family lived off of. I mean, we would walk and pick up cans to make extra money. My parents would mow yards, paint houses. I never, ever thought that I would be doing this. And, we, you know, me and my husband over the years, we've been married for going on 18 years this year. You know, we'd talked about businesses before, but this was never one of them. This just literally all fell together in about two weeks' time. We found a building that we liked, and I liked this one. This building was actually built in 1900, and we had to do about four grand worth of work on it. But, you know, I worked my extra jobs because, like I said, I had three jobs before I did this, and I just worked those for a few extra weeks just to, you know, keep getting money in to 
go ahead and finish out what we needed to do. Seriously, anybody can do this, anybody. So now owning a business, and this is one of the big things going through the government right now, if, if they lower taxes on you know, businesses, a small, especially small businesses, yeah. what would you use that money for? Oh, I'd use it to make my business better. My money that I've been getting through here, like that's for the shop money. You know, of course that's mine because I'm the sole proprietor, but I've been using a lot of it to just buy more things to, I just want to keep improving. I, I don't really want to, like I said, I don't want to get rich. I just, I want to keep improving and I, I just want everybody to enjoy the place. And what does Maggie have to say to those who want to start a business? just do it like just figure out a way my dad always told me like there where there's a will there's a way and that is so true like like I said we started this with income tax money and refinanced a vehicle I mean anybody can do that anybody we we're not rich people by no means (laughs) you know I just I, I say just go for it if you know there's a way there's always a way when my husband you know brought this up I was like there's no <laughs> you know we we don't have the money to do this I don't even know if our credit's good enough to like get a business loan and you know the people who own this building they were willing to do the lease purchase with us for the first 12 months you know and that helps so much so we're, we're really thankful you know for that too but like if you know like I said if they can find somebody who will help them out the lease purchase is a great a great deal if they can find somebody to help them out with a building, I mean, you got a vehicle and it's paid for or, you know, something like that. Or it, if it's close to income tax, there's your start money right there. You can do anything, seriously. I didn't think that before we started this, but I really believe that now. And that's Maggie Bodai, owner of Handmade Heaven, and she's in Madrid, Missouri. And you can just hear the, the voice of a small business owner eager to grow and eager to, as she said, get better. And in the end, get bigger. And by the way, just a couple of more asides. In 1996, 7.81% of our population owned a small business. And that's down today to 6%. And that's not good. And that's why I think and we think uh, that there are not as many good jobs around today. And a lot of that has to do with tax policy. And again, that's why we're doing this segment, Voices of Main Street, Our Hillsdale interns, great job, Shadrach, Martin, and Colby from Hillsdale College. And uh, they're in Logan, West Virginia today, and we'll have more stories from them. And when we come back from the studio, Voices of Main Street, well, you're going to hear from someone in South Florida, a very interesting voice from a part of the country that we're going to get to know a lot better over the coming weeks and months. This is Our American Stories. The Voices of Main Street Project.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our hour, Voices of Main Street, where we cover the lives of small business owners around this country, and we do this from time to time, and it's sponsored, as always, by our friends at the Job Creators Network. Go to DefendMainStreet.org to see all that they do. We love sending our team out to talk to small business owners, get their stories, what they're going through, and what they want to tell you, the country, about their lives. And one of the stories our irrepressible interns from Hillsdale College came up with was one from their own hometown. That is the hometown of their college, Hillsdale, Michigan. The business, the Market House grocery store, the owner, a fourth-generation owner, Brett Boyd. And so our interns talked with Brett and first asked him, What we ask every guest, what was his very first job as a kid? Our supermarket used to be closed on Sunday, and uh, I would go in with my dad on Sunday morning um, and face out the shelves and mop up the aisles and kind of clean up the store. And and at the end of about a four- or five-hour shift, I got an ice cream cone, and uh, I thought that was the greatest thing ever uh, until I got a little bit older and kind of realized I was probably on the wrong side of... uh, the ledger there, but uh, it was always a pleasure starting uh, uh, with my dad in the family business. And when I'd go in there, no one was in there, so I uh, kind of had the store to myself. But uh, it's funny because I've tried that with my kids now, and, and uh, that doesn't go over very well. Brett became the next generation owner after his dad, and the competition, well, it's stiffer than ever. They have a Kroger right next door to them, a Walmart four miles down the road, and of course, there's the internet. It's been tough going for this family business, but Brett has gone all in to try to survive, taking out a bank loan. And the loan, he used the proceeds to try and bring in restaurants, gyms, post offices, and pharmacies into his store, make it a one-stop shop for his patrons. Well, our interns asked Brett, does this big, outstanding bank loan make it hard to sleep at night? Yeah, you know, it's it's tough, um, but... uh, we were kind of in a put up or shut up um, situation in Hillsdale due to our competition, um, due to the markets. Uh, we had to make an investment, and um, we we really believe in our people. We believe in our community. We believe in our employees, and uh, especially when you're a Hillsdale kid, you live up in your hometown, and you know you you take pride in that investment and what you can do in the community. The toughest part right now is. Uh, is about the third of the month <laughs> when uh, when that payment comes due. It, it's uh, it's extremely difficult right now as we continue to grow our business and try to um, you know forge towards more profitability. Uh, but it's something that I love to do, especially when you got a family behind you, seventy six years of tradition. Um, you know, quitting was not an option. We uh, we want to grow our business, continue to grow it into a fifth generation. Most people walking into Brett's stores probably think, this guy's got two stores and he's got all these restaurants, gyms, and pharmacies in them. He's got to be pretty wealthy, right? And yet, to hear him ta- and yet to hear him talk about being nervous about whether he'll be able to pay his bank loan each month, it's pretty remarkable and, we be- and would be surprising to most folks. Here's Brett on this point. Yeah, I, I think it's a big misconception, um, uh, obviously, over the years, I think my family is the, the supermarket industry in Hillsdale, Michigan, has uh, treated us very, very well. Um, 
but you know competition is really uh tightened up at what was already a tight margin business and uh you know we we even at Hillsdale we haven't got ourselves to profitability yet um but we're not we're not giving up and uh it is it's stressful times and um but again I, I wouldn't have made this commitment without the relationships we have with our community with our customers uh with Hillsdale College has been just a tremendous supporter of our business over the years. And, um, you know, I have a lot of faith, um, a lot of faith that we're going to be fine and we're going to drive on and we're going to be profitable and, and we're going to make an even bigger mark on the community. And you can hear the pain in his voice. I mean, you can just hear it. And yet the resilience, too. Brett mentioned his low profit margin, and so we asked him what it was. Yeah, the supermarket business has always been known as one of the lowest or tightest margin industries out there. Um, it's pennies on the dollar. Um, at the end of the day, if you could make one and a half, two percent, um, you're doing a good, you're doing a good job. Um, uh, it's, and those margins are just, my goal is to, to run a business that makes, you know, somewhere between two and a half to three percent profitability. And my ultimate goal is invest that money back into the 401k and retirement plans of my associates and invest that back into our community. Um, because, uh, without our community and our associates, we're, you know, we won't reach year number 77 of our family business. A goal of making 2.5 to 3 cents out of every dollar a customer spends. That sounds just crazy. But it's also a free enterprise at work, folks, and what's driven all of our family's food costs much lower. Walmart, for example, saves the average family $2,500 a year by squeezing costs out of the system. And Brett's trying to do the same thing to compete, compete for your business and compete for customers. Brett continued. It's probably kind of alarming for most folks out there that deal with double-digit gross profits but when you consider um the utility costs the insurance costs all those factors uh, then of course your labor and i'm so blessed to have such a phenomenal staff at both of our stores and you know we my ultimate goal is to be able to pay them even more but i try to take care of them they, they've taken care of my family for many many years and uh take care of our customers and uh i i take a lot of pride in trying to offer a fair wage to our to our associates and ultimately I want to pay him pay him even more and be in a position where we can contribute to the community at an even higher pace. We asked Brett, like we ask a lot of small business owners, if the proposed tax cut were to go down from the current thirty nine percent to fifteen percent, would it help his business and his employees? Yes. Um we uh we actually are trying to uh we met with all our associates earlier this year, and our ultimate goal is to grow our company to $25 million in sales this year. And the $25 million target was not really our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal was to get to that $25 million, but along the way be able to contribute more to our associates and contribute more uh, to our community. So, you know, any relief on in taxes, especially with our tight margins, would be so beneficial in uh um, you know, we, we just want to reinvest that back into what we are, and that's our hometown of Hudson and Hillsdale. 
And you can hear it in this small business owner's voice. And by the way, our interns from Hillsdale and our team here will continue to talk to small business owners across this country because they're still hurting. They're still hurting, and you can hear it. Small business owners, by the way, in a poll revealed on Job Creators Network's website, while 75% of them agreed that high taxes and tax complexity threaten their businesses. And again, imagine if you're working on margins of 3 and 4 and 5% and taxes are in the mid-30s as opposed to 15 to 20, that's the difference between survival or not. 60% believe, by the way, that the current tax plan will have a positive effect on their business and their hiring. And this is what we like to do. Find out what small business owners are thinking, what they're talking about. Voices of Main Street, brought to us by our friends at Job Creators Network. Go to defendmainstreet.org to learn more about what Job Creators Network does to defend small business owners around this great country. This is Our American Stories, Small Business Owners Stories. We do them all the time. Our American Stories, and just great job by our interns from Hillsdale. And you just heard the voice of small business, and my goodness. Well, there's nothing more to say. I just want to keep you posted on what's happening in this country. And this is a part of our Voices of Main Street project. And we'll be bringing you many more stories of what's happening on Main Street in this country in small businesses. Next up, well, a man's name is Carlos... Gazetua, and he's the owner of Sergio's, a small chain of Cuban restaurants in South Florida. And our own Alex Cortez brings us his story. My mom was really kind of my cornerstone. My mom and father got divorced when I was young, so I, I got to live in a, in a single-parent lifestyle. And you get to see, whenever you don't have a family unit together, there's definitely more challenges for the child. I think you see the reality of life a little bit faster in terms of the hard work that's necessary, that you appreciate what each member of your family contributes to you. Whenever you have two two families, separate incomes, that definitely creates more, um, I would say less income for you as a child to experience some of the things that maybe other families have or have not. His mom had a restaurant, and their family had purchased it just so that Carlos's grandmother could get out of working at a factory and work there instead. Even though they didn't know a single thing about restaurants, this special grandmother fled Cuba and brought generations of her family's recipes with her. 
My grandmother saw when Fidel Castro took over that the opportunities were diminishing rapidly in Cuba. Many Cubans thought was going to be an opportunity for democracy and freedom um, when Bautista was forced out of power really turned into a nightmare for many Cubans in the island. They didn't see what they thought was going to happen. It wasn't freedom. In fact, it was turning more into a dictatorship. So um, at that time, my grandmother and, and many of the people in Cuba realized that they had to leave. Unfortunately, by that time, it was too late. And you basically, if you left that island, you could not take anything. Jewelry, cash, nothing. And the United States was always the dream for opportunity. It was the land of opportunity. And when they had the opportunity to come over, that's what they did. They came over to start from scratch because they knew that they were gonna give the second generation, not just them, because that's, that's an important point because many immigrants, when they come over here, they, they realize that it's not them that's gonna benefit. It's gonna be the second and the third generation that will benefit. And that's what they thought when they came over. And that third generation was Carlos, who at the age of eight will wake up at 5 a.m. every single morning to help open the restaurant at 6 a.m. before he went to school. He would open up and turn on the, the, the coffee machine. And if I had to count the cash, actually, in the morning to help service the, the first customers who always knew what kind of coffee they wanted. And at that time, it was also, believe it or not, was cigars. He would buy cigars in the morning as it was a very uh, Cuban uh, population and people didn't know much about cigarettes and cigars. They would buy that in the morning for their day and they would get their breakfast or eggs or ham. And that's kind of what we were we were involved with was opening up. And uh, it was definitely an experience because as a kid, you're so young that the last thing you want to do is go to uh, work before you school. But it was definitely a, a lesson that stayed with me to remember how hard life could be. Unfortunately, not not many people get to see the experience of working in a small business and seeing how hard it is before going to school. My favorite description of being an entrepreneur is that you do get to make your own hours, but you also get to work all of the hours. I then spoke with Carlos about the topic of the day. What would the proposed tax cut to 15% mean for Sergio's restaurants and its employees. But I first asked him, what's the tax rate he's paying now? Oh, us? I think close to 50%. Close to 50%, easily. 50? Isn't it 39.5 for the top individual rate? So how are you getting hit more? Because of cash flow. Most, Most people think, okay, small business, okay, you're paying 39%. But every small business owner will tell you, particularly any business that has a lot of... Um, business or volume coming in for inventory and purposes, they can't pull out all the cash. So what you got to do is pay pre-estimated taxes every quarter. That kills many small businesses to, to invest because you're paying taxes in, in quarterly. Okay. But then also you got to keep a certain amount of money in your business just in case something happens. So when you really think about it, after paying um, federal income tax, all the taxes I told you, affordable care act tax, professional taxes, tangible taxes, payroll tax, sales tax, annual corporate fee tax, all these expenses. Small businesses have to keep money in their business for it to grow. And most restaurants don't even have that much money in the first place. Their average profit margin is only 5%. So for every dollar a customer spends, 
their profit is only five cents. Compare this to law offices with an average profit margin three times this and accountants four times this. This low profit margin makes high taxes all the more devastating. I then asked Carlos if he's estimated how much the tax cut would return to his business. I haven't really calculated because, you know, with the political realm these days, they say something, but is it really going to happen? Many small business owners say, can't even think about it until it really does because it's so uncertain in the political arena right now that you kind of just are waiting, waiting to see and try not to hold your breath. Even though Carlos hasn't calculated the exact amount yet, he said it would be the difference between night and day for the growth of his business. And so I asked him how would the business spend its own money that it would be allowed to keep more of. For us, as you grow a business, you have to focus on infrastructure first. You don't just grow without focusing on infrastructure. So the first thing, if we have more uh, money coming in, is, is building. For us, it would be, for example, regional directors, um, which are high-paying jobs, right, to take over and maybe and have corporate chefs for our restaurants. So as you grow, those people will support our current restaurants and then develop the new restaurants as well. So those kind of positions is what we're looking for. It gives 